Well, again, good morning. I'm Tom Davisinskis, pastor of Adult Ministries, maybe a little more telling and descriptive. I'm someone who is very thankful to be a child of God, yes, by grace and grace alone. And by that grace, I'm someone who is continually understanding and trusting how God views not only me, but the people around me. I'm so thankful for that because there's times where I'm scratching my head or, or even more than that, sometimes irritated as I look around and wonder, God, what, what are you doing? When I see maybe someone who's immature, young, naive, maybe functioning a little more from that, that young, prideful place, oblivious to their areas of growth and sin and just continuing in patterns of poor behavior. And the only thing they're really concerned about is not God, but just the people they want to impress. I'm like, God, what, what's going on there? What do you want to do there in the life of that person? Or as you get to the more irritating ones to me, or when you see someone who is just blatantly disregarding God and is just continuing to do things that are very wrong, and yet they're flourishing. Things are going well for them. And I'm like, God, where are you in the midst of that? Right? Or another one that's tough for me is to see people who are faithfully following God in the midst of difficult circumstances, pressing in to be faithful to what God would have them be, yet they continually are facing difficulties. It seems like everything around them is getting worse. And I'm left wondering again, God, where are you in the midst of that? Do you know any people that fit descriptions like this? Have you interacted with anyone like this and maybe wondered the same thing? God, what are you doing? Maybe you've been one of these people and wondered, God, what are you up to? Well, what we see in today's passage is that God is very near. God is in the midst of these people and what's going on in their lives in, in ways, well, where he not only wants to save them, but wants to sanctify them. God not only wants to bring them into a relationship where they know and enjoy and follow him, but a relationship where his spirit's at work, helping them grow and mature, that process of sanctification. And God does this, interestingly enough, in the midst of being surrounded by difficult people and situations. Matter of fact, does some of his best work, most beautiful, life-transforming, life-saving, sanctifying work, in the midst of when we're interacting with difficult people. Now last week and today we're looking at passages which help us understand more about the character of God. In Genesis 34 we saw the wrath of God as justice is brought down on a corrupt, very depraved people. Now it'd be easy to look at that and think, well, the wrath of God, that's just something in the Old Testament, right? It doesn't, you know, apply now. And it's like, no, very much so. It's not just an Old Testament thing. We can turn to passages where we see the wrath of God in the New Testament and in the realities happening right then. But we also see that the people in the New Testament are writing about the wrath of God that is to come. You might remember 2 Peter speaking of some of this that we looked at last summer. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Okay, Peter's looking ahead. He says, The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief, and then... The heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay, a day of wrath and judgment. 
Now, maybe some of you have been thinking as you were listening to Jesse last week talk about what was going on in that passage. And you see that there are these people who come and kill not only Shechem, but the entire city of men. They go well beyond what God has said. They wipe out an entire city, not what God instructed. Okay, And yet, by the end of that story, you're not seeing any wrath come their way. And you're going, wait a minute. Okay, these guys are corrupt and wrong, but so are these. And wait a minute, how come they didn't? You know, and it's like, how do you make sense of that? And well, today's passage takes us to an important other characteristic of God that we hold, need to hold together with his wrath, right? And that characteristic is God's patient grace that doesn't wish for anyone to perish, but wants to lead them to repentance, to a saving knowledge of who he is. We see this again in the Second Peter passage, a verse right before what I just read. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you and me, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, in today's scripture, we're going to see more of this patient grace In Genesis 37, in this passage, we'll see the sins of these brothers start to surface. And we'll see that there is an opportunity for them and the other people in the story for this process of sanctification. And we're left with the question, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to recognize that opportunity? Are they going to trust God or continue on their ways? I invite you now to turn with me to that passage. It's Genesis 37. And we're going to start at verse 1. So go ahead and open up your Bibles, take out your phones, whatever. You want to look at the passage. We're going to be looking at quite a bit of it today and would love for you to see it firsthand and maybe even take some little notes uh, along the way as we go. Genesis 37. I invite you to follow along as I read starting there in verse 1. We read that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all of them, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to Joseph. Here in this very opening of chapter 37, we begin to see the sins of people we've met along the way begin to surface. In verse 2, we meet Joseph, who we learn is an immature tattletale, right? He's out with his brothers. He sees his brothers doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Rather than speaking or trying to redirect there, he decides, well, I'm going to go tell Dad, you know what they were doing out there? And I'm thinking to myself at this point in the story, Joseph, do you realize who you're tattletaling on? (laughs) Do you not remember these are the guys that, you know, just a little while earlier wiped out an entire city? You don't want to get on their bad side, Joseph, all right? Right? But here he is, you know kind of that young, immature, naive person going and telling dad. And then there is dad here. And we begin to learn more about this person that we've met chapters earlier. 
uh, referred to here as both Jacob and Israel. It's the same person, right, as we remember the story that's unfolding through Genesis, right? And we learn three different things about him through this passage. First, look at verse 3. We learn that he loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He had favorites. Jacob had favorites and his favorite of his sons. We know you're not supposed to do that, but we're seeing it full, you know, fully revealed right here is that his youngest son was his favorite son. You might remember also, interesting to note, that Jacob was a youngest son. He had a brother, an older brother, right? And that those, between those brothers, there was conflict as well. Maybe jot down in your Bible or on your sermon notes, Genesis 27. It's in this passage here that we see Jacob sinning against his brothers, right? Or his brother. Great story. Go look at that later, okay? And then he lies to his parents as well. So the second thing we learn from this passage is that the habits and preferences of people can be passed on to their children, right? It's what's called generational sin, that the sins of a father can then be manifest in his children, just as Jacob, right, sinned against his brother, so now he's seeing his children sin against one another. Just as Jacob lied to his parents, right, as this story unfolds today, we'll see his children now lying to him. Our patterns of sin can be passed on to our children. They can have that proclivity to fall into those same sins, Right? They can be tempted to fall into those in the same way as we were. One of the saddest examples of this I, I see is how you see people who've been abused as children. It's an unbelievably high percentage. I want to say it's over 70%. I haven't seen the statistic lately, though, so don't quote me. But it's just unbelievable the amount of them that go on to then abuse their children as well. The habits, the sins passed on. You see this in, in people uh, who struggle with addiction of some sort, right? If mom and dad have suffered with something like drug or alcohol abuse, the children need to be careful not to fall into that same. There's a certain weakness or temptation that's unique to them to fall into those patterns of sin. See this in lighthearted ways, too, just even with preferences. You know, my wife calls my son a mini-me, right? And uh, not only my, my enjoyment of food, but my mannerisms, words I'll use, and, and he's picked up. How much of that is, you know nurture versus nature, there's definitely a part of all that there. The point being is that who we are can have a huge impact, not just on us, but on our children around us. The good news is there's a God in the midst of that that can make a difference. And we see that in the life of Jacob as well. We see this in Genesis 32, yet another chapter to write down and look at later. I draw your attention to verse 28 in there where God changes Jacob's name to Israel. You'll see him in this chapter mentioned both ways. And in chapter 32, we see that Jacob's had this powerful, life-changing interaction with God. God says to him, he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob, reflecting on this time, says, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I've been saved. I've been changed. So the third thing we learn about Jacob and about God is that God is in the business of bringing life change. 
No matter who we are, no matter how hardened or oblivious to our sin, God is pursuing and will break through in ways that deliver us from our sins. That we don't have to keep repeating those patterns that maybe for generations have been going on. That because of God's grace, there can be a freedom as we step into relationship with God, as we receive his power to live differently, as we receive his sanctifying work in us where we get to be different, where we get to be with God in intimate, personal ways. This is really good news. And this is good news that, well, Jacob's children need to know and trust. As we turn again to the scriptures in verse 4, we're seeing that Jacob's children, Joseph's brothers, and he himself are in need of the saving work of God. Verse 4 says, But when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. It takes it a step further. It says they couldn't speak peacefully to him. Couldn't say a kind word to him. Couldn't say a kind thing about him, nor even envision a future where there'd be something good that goes on. It's the idea of shalom, total well-being. And they're saying, there's nothing at all well about Joseph. Can't see that coming in the future. As a matter of fact, all we see is the things that irritate us. They thought deliverance of Joseph was not an option and are just in this place of anger and bitterness. Now, before we get too critical of Joseph's brothers, let me, let me ask a, a piercing question of you that I was reflecting on even as I prepared this. Is there anyone in your life where you find yourself in a similar place going, I can't see anything good in that person? I don't think there's going to be any life change for this person. They've been doing this for a long time. It's easy to fall into that. And I'd encourage us to remember the good news of who God is in similar people in our lives as well. It's important to examine what's going on in our hearts in those relationships as well. To look at our desires and cravings that shape the way how we are relating to people around us. James 4, 1 through 3, that we just got done looking at, the book of James, says it this way. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. James is saying, hey, take a look at what's going on in your heart and don't miss the opportunity God is having for the sanctifying work in your own heart as well. And it is very easy to miss that work when faced with difficult people or situations. Our natural inclination is to do one of two things, to bail Say, forget it, I'm out of here, or to cut off from that relationship, I'm not going to have anything to do. Our other tendency is to blame. It's their fault. They're the person that the problem's with. Pointing the fingers, blaming other people. And you see this in the opening chapters of Genesis, right from the very beginning, right? Adam and Eve, remember the story with the apple, right? Adam takes a bite out of the apple, find out it's not a good thing, and what does he do? It's her fault. She made me do it. It's, you know, she's the one to blame, right? You see it right from the beginning. And when they figure out together that that's not working, what do they do? They're bailing. 
Scriptures tell us they want to hide from God. Are you kidding me? I have all these funny scenarios playing out. How do you hide from an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, right? What does that look like? I can see him kind of hiding behind one of the trees in the garden like, okay, he's not going to see us here. And it's like, oh, shoot, there he is again. He sees us. How does he keep doing this? Man. Or they decide, well, we're out of here. We're going to bail. We're just going to, you know, take off. And it's like, can't shake this guy. Man, whoa, whoa, there he is again, you know. He's everywhere. I mean, what, what a silly thing. But yet we do that as well, Right? We lose sight of who God is, how he sees things, and so we blame or we bail. But God wants to bring us back to this place of believing. Believing that he's present, believing that he's good, believing that he can do good in the midst of where we find ourselves. You see, in this uh, response, in, in how easy it is to do in our lives, I'm thinking of myself. My, my favorite one is... Um, to bail, but I don't start there. I start over here when something's irritating me. I can feel that, that anger start to rise up. And then I have that really faithful response. Go, Oh, yeah, I, I follow Jesus. I'm not supposed to be angry ever. And so I just say, forget it. I'm out of here. <laughs> and just bail. Cut off the relationship. Avoid the situation. And that's not good. And God ever so patiently and graciously keeps working in my heart, bringing me back to that place of saying, no, there's an opportunity here. Will you believe that, Tom? See, in every situation, every difficulty we face or difficult relationship, there are always, always three opportunities to see God at work. Number one is to slow down and say, okay, God, what's it you want to teach me? How do you want to continue the good work you've begun in me through this circumstance, this relationship? What does that look like? What's the log in my own eye to refer to Matthew 7 as it speaks about? Help me see what that is, God, for me. How you want to mature me. How you want to help me trust you more. That's opportunity one. Opportunity number two is to love and to serve and to forgive as Jesus is loved, served, and forgiven us. With the, those difficult people around us. To look to Jesus and say, okay, as much as I don't want to, will you give me the desire to love as you have loved me? To serve even the person who's most difficult in my life? And he will, I promise you. That's the second opportunity. The third is this, that as we take those other two steps, other people will look on and go, wow, there's something different going on here. I would even say it might look miraculous that these people who should be at odds with each other are caring for one another. I even see character qualities that I would admire. I hear him talking about God. Maybe there is such a thing as a God who's present and active. That's the third opportunity. We get to glorify God, make him known in ways. Well, I love how Jay used to say that, that he's famous. We make Jesus famous, make him known for who he is. As I think of this, I'm thinking of a situation where currently I'm in. Uh, that I'm not going to tell you the story of, but it's just as powerful as the one that I'm going to tell you, of seeing two people at odds. This was a previous church I had the privilege of serving. Two men, two men, both believers, both at the same church, both completely at odds with each other, not happy, avoid each other, even if they're in the same service. Okay, These are two very successful businessmen, and they're at odds with each other because they had done a business deal and disagreed over who should be paying what to the tune of just under six figures, thousands of dollars at stake here, okay? And these guys, both in church, 
and both not wanting to have anything to do with one another at odds to anyone that had paid attention at all. It was quite obvious that that was going on for them. Well, there had been people who had encouraged them that, you know what, this isn't the end of the story, okay? Not to just sit here and, and blame one another or just bail and avoid each other, but that they could believe that God had something different. And there's people praying for them as they saw this, encouraging them, and they eventually got to the place where they wanted to sit down with me and another person to help them reconcile and seek God in the midst of this, all right? And it was several meetings. It was many hours, and I began to see their hearts become tender to that first opportunity of what's in it for me? What, what does God have for me to learn, right? And <laughs> I'll never forget where literally on the face of this person, I could see from, from going to here, all of a sudden there was, his face began to relax and there was like this tenderness that came over him. The person I was with had mentioned a scripture that had just cut to his heart and you could see it on his face and he began to cry. Now, this really got my attention because this is a guy I had never seen any vulnerable emotion out of, let alone cry. And he didn't just start to cry with a tear. He started crying both, and he started to confess his sins to this person. Risky, vulnerable, what is he doing? He's sitting there saying, hey, I've blown it. Here's where I've wronged you, and I am so sorry. I know how this has hurt you. Will you forgive me for these things? Just crying. The other person at first, their, their reaction was just one of kind of like shock, like, what's going on? And then you began to see, you know, I'll say over a period of minutes, all of a sudden it started hitting this person. And it wasn't long, but I'm sitting before two men that are just bawling, confessing their sins, telling them they love each other, and then arguing now about who's going to give who more money. That's God. That's the beautiful work God will do as we trust him, as we ask these questions. Okay, God, in the midst of this, how can I glorify you? It's not about me. It's about you, and I want to glorify you. I want this to somehow point to you and make you known to others. And I want to do the work in my own heart. I want to encourage and pray for the other person. And when we do that, amazing things happen. And when we don't do that, sad things, destructive things painful things happen. And that's where our story goes next. Look at verse 18. Well, actually before 18, just glance at verses 5 through 11, where we see Joseph, <laughs> you know, talk about young and naive. Joseph gets this dream, dream from God, and he decides he's going to go tell his brothers this dream. Now, what was he thinking when he goes to his brothers and says, hey, I had this dream and there's going to come a time where all you guys are bowing down to me. Bad idea, Joseph. And we see in verse 18 that this now is bringing the brothers to the place where they want to not only hate him, but kill him. Okay? Look at verse 18. Joseph goes looking to find them, and one day when the brothers saw him far away, before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Joseph is clueless to his own sin and that of the blind rage of his brothers. The brothers said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, a cistern, something that would collect water. We're going to throw him in that. He says, then we'll stay, say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams then. Right? I love how realistic Scripture is. Right? No quick and easy answers. People can get stuck in, in their sin, be unaware, unwilling to repent of their sin. It's realistic to what we face today. 
And yeah, let's be honest. Whether it's us who are stuck or us who are on the receiving end of the hatred of someone else who's stuck in their sin, it can be really frustrating, discouraging. Or maybe even if we're the person who's trying to do something good and just see things continually get worse. Boy, that's really discouraging. God, where are you at in the middle of those situations? Those are the times where we need to keep remembering who God is and keep trusting him, especially when things are difficult and we don't understand what's going on. And that brings us to the last person in today's story, Reuben, another one of the brothers. Reuben was the oldest brother, and because he was the oldest, would have had responsibility to take care of younger brother. Dad would have wanted to make sure that younger brother was safe and would have probably said to Reuben, hey, while they're out, you need to keep an eye on them. Make sure everything's good with him. And we see Reuben trying to act, I will say, at least responsibly, maybe even faithfully, in the midst of his brothers who are all worked up. Verse 21, But when Reuben heard what his brothers were planning, he rescued him, meaning Joseph, out of their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And we get a glimpse into what's surfacing in Reuben's heart. He wanted to be able to rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So the brothers throw Joseph in the pit. Reuben goes away, and when he isn't around, the brothers, still in that place of anger and hatred, start plotting again. They get this great idea that as there's a trader, a merchant coming by, that they're going to sell now their brother to this merchant, who then, as we learn, will take him to Egypt. Reuben is trying to redirect, trying to respond faithfully, but things just get worse. As he comes back, he discovers how bad it's gotten. Verse 29 says, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He's in anguish. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? I'm in big trouble now. And they came up with a plan. We see that there in 31. It says, They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I'm going to go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Matter of fact, I'm going to, it's saying, I'm going to die just mourning my son. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. At this point in the story, nothing good is is happening. It looks like stuff is just getting worse. But here's the reality. God is present and working to redeem the evil, wrong choices that are being made. God is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is at work, at work right in the midst of those and at at work in ways that will bless future generations. An interesting side note to me is if you look at future Mosaic law, 
One of the places you see that is Deuteronomy 24. There's law put in place that's saying, this is wrong. Don't do this in the future. God's speaking directly to the people, giving them directions. Deuteronomy 24, 7 says, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, sound familiar? Then the thief shall die. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Again, you can see that, that, that wrath and the patient grace in the midst of all that. Now, for those of you who know the story of Joseph, there is a whole lot more good to come. And don't worry, no spoiler alert needed today. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how that unfolds. That'll be for future weeks when, when we look at that. But please believe me and keep your eye out for how in the upcoming chapters and days in Joseph and his family's life, you see God's patient grace being responded to in very difficult situations. It does. There's more difficulty to come, more difficult people to come. But you start seeing the people in the story trusting God in the midst of not knowing what that means or what God's up to. And it's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful for me to, to look back and see how the very thing of Joseph being sold off to Egypt, something evil and wrong, that interaction, God's working in the midst of that to bless the family eventually and to bless the people in Egypt as well. God taking wrong, sinful choices and bringing good of it. This is what God does. It's exciting to, to see that happen. Let me ask you this as we conclude. As you hear each one of these people in the story, Joseph, brothers, dad, Reuben, which of these most re resonates for you or you can relate to the most? Which of these characters is it? Is it Joseph where you feel like you're trapped maybe in a pit, difficult circumstances and people around you, not sure what God would ever want to teach you, feeling like you just want to blame them or maybe get out of town and bail? Or you like the brothers. There's been something that has just set you off and you find yourself in that place of anger. Or maybe you're like dad, Israel. One step removed, seeing what's going on around you and just grieving, going, this surely isn't what God intended. And not knowing what to do. When you see people you love at odds and hurting one another. Or maybe you're like Reuben, where you're believing that God can do something. You're, you're pressing in to respond faithfully, and yet things just keep getting worse and harder around you. And you begin to doubt and wonder, is God really doing anything here? Will he do anything here? Can you identify with at least one of these people today as we open up this passage? Well, for each of these, let me suggest some encouraging, faithful ways to respond where you find yourself at. If you're like a Joseph, trapped in difficult circumstances, not sure what God wants to teach you, matter of fact, for all these, you might look at the bottom of the sermon notes page. I've given some, some ideas there about application. What I'd encourage you to do, if you're not sure what, what, what's going on or how God would have you respond, get together with a trusted, faithful friend. Get together, explain what's going on, and then together figure out how you can fix the other person. That was a joke. <laughs> no. Together say, what 
do you think God wants to teach me or how he wants to change me? That's a dangerous, scary question because it's a whole lot easier to say, how can we fix the other person? Or you never believe what this person's doing. It takes faith to enter in that place of believing that no matter what the circumstance, he who began a good work in you will continue it and he'll do it even through the most difficult of times. So press in and believe and ask a friend to help you. Sometimes those faithful friends can not only help you see stuff, I know they've done that for me that I didn't see, but equally important, there'll be people that stand with you in prayer and support and encourage you in that process of growth and change. Maybe you're like the brothers. Maybe you can think of someone that's just set you off that you're angry with. Interesting for me how God surfaces stuff in my life as I'm preparing even the sermon where there was a situation where I saw someone continually doing something which was hurting others and I found myself in that place of anger. And then I remembered God brought to mind this wonderful book. Uh, Ken Sandy, Peacemaker, chapters 5 and 6. Make note of that. I encourage you to pick up the book, get it. He does this wonderful job of saying, wait a minute, what's underneath that anger? Oh, yeah. And as I started remembering that praying, I'm like, yeah, there's that anxiety that's surfacing for me. I I don't want to see people hurt. I'm scared nothing's going to happen. There's that doubt, wondering, oh. And so I got to take it into my own hands. Anger is a great way to do that, right? Try to regain control. No, it's not. It's not a good thing. And so even this week, God bringing me back to, to pray through and say, okay, what does it look like? To surrender who I am to God, to continually look at my own life first see what God wants to do, and continually pray for the other people. And, well, the next person. If you find yourself more like Israel, you know, the person removed, pained at what you're seeing, there was a part of me that could relate to that as well. What does it look like to not just stay removed, but to press in in that place of belief and saying, God, what do you want to do here? Press in in the way where you offer that encouraging, redirecting word that points people to God in different ways. You know those men that I shared about that were at odds with each other within the same church? You know what God used to help start to turn them back towards each other and God? Was people in the church <laughs> that said, hey, I hear you being really angry. Um, what, what do you think maybe God has good in the midst of this he's trying to do? Or a woman encouraging the other man saying, hey, I know these people that you know, have you know, studied what the scriptures say about reconciliation, have been an encouragement. Maybe you might go talk to them. You never know how as you press into situations, a word you offer, an encouragement, your, your prayers, how God's going to use that to change people's hearts and, and relationships as you point them towards reconciliation, as you be a peacemaker. Jesus says, blessed are those peacemakers. And blessing, they get a see. Or maybe you're a Reuben who's trying to faithfully respond and just sees things getting worse. My encouragement to you is to persevere. Don't give up. Remember what God's done in the past. Hold on to that. Remember what you can see God doing even in the present in the midst of what you don't know is going on. Look for where you can see God and hold on to that and keep trusting, keep persevering. The story's not over. The story's not over. We end right here and things have just gotten worse in the lives of Joseph and his brothers. But the story's not over. God's not done doing what he's going to do. And oh, how beautiful it is as we see this story unfold in ways that you would look and go, I never would have thunk that. That's awesome.
That's God. That's glorious. That makes me want to worship. As I say that, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love the story of Joseph because it intersects in my life in so many different ways that speak to my heart in so many different ways. As I think of my own life and where I've seen God work in ways that are better than I thunk, it was with my relationship with my dad. My dad, who left us as a family, moved in with my best friend's mom, who he'd been having an affair with for years. My dad, who I spent in that place of blaming and hatred for all throughout high school, doing whatever little petty, stupid things I could to get back at him in some way, let him know how he'd hurt all of us as a family. Thankfully, a believer coming alongside me and saying, you know what? I came to faith in college and he said, you know, just as Jesus has forgiven you, he'd want you to forgive your dad. What might that look like? Can I pray with you in that? Helping me see something I didn't see in my own heart. Praying for me to go to a place I could never go to on my own, but he knew and he trusted that God could take me to a place of reconciliation with my dad. Before my dad ever came and said, hey, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Before any of that happened, God had moved me to a place where I had forgiven my dad, where I wanted to build a relationship with him. Over a period of time, I had a pretty hardened, angry heart. (laughs) It took a lot of prayer, a lot of grace. But God changed it, changed me, and then, yes, eventually changed my dad. My dad who calls me while I'm in seminary and says, can I have dinner with you? We get together at dinner, and I'm sitting at McCormick and Schmidt's, this nice restaurant, and my dad starts crying. My dad never showed those emotions. And says, I want to confess what I'm learning about who I've been as your dad. I'm sitting there going, this is better than I ever would have thunk. But the story wasn't done. In the years to come, i got to watch my dad faithfully respond to my brothers. Their anger and hatred. All that had gone on and seeing their hearts melt. See their hearts be open, not just to my dad and reconciling with my dad, but with God. Last Thanksgiving, I was with my family. I get to continually see it. I left there and my son says to me, he said, Dad, there's something different going on in your brother's life. He's a different person. And I just go, yeah, that's God. Because I've been able to hear from his wife what's been going on. (laughs) I've been able to see God do more than I thunk or imagine. And the story's not over for my family. The story's not over for Joseph and the story is not over for any of us that are willing to keep following Jesus. And as we do, as we keep trusting him, it's going to lead us to that wonderful place of worship where we go, who would have thought this? Praise God. Join me in prayer. God, we confess that within our hearts are all sorts of desires and passions and distractions. We are a mix of doubt and belief, unbelief and faith. We're a people in process. And thankfully, you are a God of grace who is continuing your work in us and then through us. So again, in this hour, we submit ourselves to you and say, your will be done. Your kingdom ways come in us. God, continue to sanctify us, mature us. God, help us relate to others in ways that point them to you. Ways where we love them and forgive them as you have loved and forgiven us. 
God, thank you for the ways that I know it's not just me, but others in this room can look back and see powerful examples of you doing life change in us and people around us that we thought never would turn to you. But you are a powerful God who is patiently, gracefully at work. God, help us trust that. Yeah, in the midst of, I know there's people in this room where there's difficult situations going on right now and it's not going to change next week. Probably might even get worse. But help us all to continually trust you, knowing that you are present, knowing that you are good. And as Romans says, we'll work all things together for good. Yeah, even those difficult things. We love you, Lord. Thank you for how you love us. Help us respond to your love, trust your love, and share your love in this day and week for your glory. 